All right. Once again, we are in our Ten Commandments series in week three. So we're in the third commandment. So if you've got your Bible with you, open it up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read one verse today, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. While you're turning there, I said this last week, I'll probably say this a lot, especially during this series. Sermons do not stand on their own. Sermons exist within the ecosystem of Scripture. So when we teach one sermon, it goes in concert with the rest of what Scripture teaches. Sermons also exist within the ecosystem of what a church teaches over the course of its life. So... For that reason, I would highly encourage you, if you've missed a week or two of this series, or if at any point you miss a week of this series, to go back and catch up on the podcast. No, we're not trying to get a whole bunch of like listens on iTunes or anything like that. But what we've seen is that the Ten Commandments form not just like the ten big rules, but they really form like wedding vows. That These things build an ethic that expands and builds the ethic of the kingdom of God. So you might remember if you were here in the first week, we talked about how these are the vows of the covenant, and that God says, no no one else in the sacred God space. And then last week we talked about how we are not to make any graven images, because any image we make will be in our image, not God's image. It will be our projection and our assumption. And we talked about how we are the image of God. So we don't need an idol, which means everything that we do is built on worship. Every time we interact with another human being, it's an act of worship. And all of these ideas build together. And you might have noticed, if you've been here every week thus far, that the consistent theme is that the covenant is built on God's faithfulness and reveals his mercy, that his character is revealed clearly in his love and mercy. And we see that over and over and over again through the Ten Commandments. So sermons exist within the ecosystem of Scripture and within the ecosystem of one another, building a full picture of what the Scriptures look like. Make sense? Awesome. All right, we're going to jump right in. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You might have heard that in a different translation or memorized it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's pray. God, we come to you today asking that you would speak, acknowledging your presence with us in worship, reminding ourselves that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there. And acknowledging again, we're here to hear from you. Anything that's not from you, let it be revealed so it can be forgotten and rejected. But what is from you, let it form our hearts into your likeness. Holy Spirit, go before us and soften our hearts to your word today. We love you. Amen. Some of you might know this. Um, I am kind of a history buff, specifically like pre-1900 war history. I know that my dad uniform is showing now. Um, Like, as soon as you have a kid, it's like you wake up the next morning and you start Googling muskets and you buy a smoker. It's just like the dad projection, I think. Um, At least for me it is, and for my dad it is. We can talk about war history a lot. Um, And specifically, one of the things that I've I've noticed, that I've learned about about war history is that pre-modern communication, um, pre-the development of walkie-talkies and radios, things like that, so pre-really 1900, any sort of large 
um, large military unit, especially if they were influenced by Europe, had a really important role in any unit, and it was the role of the flag bearer or the color bearer. Every unit that would fight would fight under specific flags. They would fight under the flag of their nation, and they would also fight under the flag of their specific battalion, of their specific unit. And that was really important because at that time they couldn't radio a command. So the bugler and the flag bearer would work in tandem. So if the bugle bugled a charge, then you could look to your flag and you could see where the charge was going. You could see where you were standing in relation to where your unit was supposed to be based on your unit's specific flag. If the bugler bugled retreat and you needed to know where to find safety or where to retreat to, then you could look to your flag and you would know that's where to go. It provided unity and and it provided um, order on the battlefield in a time where that was very difficult. If you found yourself lost or disoriented in the midst of battle, you could look around and see where your flag was flying and know whether you were with or near your unit. It was incredibly important for battle in large parts of history, especially in large military forces where there was a lot of chaos and they needed to intentionally maintain order. But as you can imagine, at that time, the most tantalizing target to fire at in any battle was the person holding the flag. Because it was the easiest way to sow chaos into your opponent. If you could bring the flag down, then even for a moment you could kill morale. You could throw chaos into the unit. They wouldn't know where to go or what to do. This became a really prevalent theme in many ancient battles, really from like the development of firearms up until like World War I probably. This was very important. There's a specific story of a battle like this that's always stood out to me. There was a unit that was given the job of taking a ridge. Their enemy had the high ground, and they were tasked with with gaining this important position in the battle. Now, this unit had numbers in their favor, but they were beneath. They did not have a ground advantage, which meant as they were trying to attack this ridge, they were clear and open targets. Their enemies were entrenched on top of this ridge, but they were given this job. So, doing what they're ordered to do, the bugler bugles the charge, the colors move forward, And they begin to attempt to take the hill. And in the first volley of fire in the battle, four color bearers fall. One after another. Each time, the man holding the flag is hit and falls. And before the flag can even hit the ground, the man standing next to him drops his rifle because... Holding the flag was a two-handed job. You can't defend yourself while you're holding the communication for your unit. You have to give up self-defense in order to take this position. So he drops his rifle and grabs the flag before it can even hit the ground. One man down. Two. Three. Four. Almost immediately. And as the battle continues, the number just climbs. Five. Six, every time someone picks up the flag, they take a few steps, they run a few yards, and they fall again. And before the flag can even settle on the ground, another soldier picks it up 
continue leading the charge. It continues to go on seven, eight, until the lieutenant general who commands this unit finds himself holding the flag, leading the charge for his men. And he fares no better than anyone else who has picked up the flag, who has carried the colors. Eight men fall, including the general. Nine. Ten. Finally, this unit gets to the trees beneath the ridge, and they've got just a little bit of shelter. They can, they can take a breather, but even in the trees, in this limited cover, the most tantalizing target is always the man standing at the base of the flag. So even as they are resting for a moment behind shelter, the number continues to climb. Eleven. Twelve. Thirteen men fall holding the colors. So finally, for the first time in the course of the battle, the colors lay unmoving on the ground. No one has ran to grab them. The fear and the reality of what holding that flag means has fully set in. And the adrenaline rush of battle has diminished. The now commander, a lieutenant colonel, is taking cover behind a tree, and one of his lieutenants says out loud what everyone has to be thinking. And he says something that is burned into my mind for whatever reason. He looked at the lieutenant colonel and said, No man can take those colors and live. And the lieutenant colonel nodded his affirmation, picked up the flag, and led the charge. Moments later, he became the 14th man and the final man to fall holding the colors. You know, Jesus would say things like, you must take up your cross and follow me. He would say that before crosses were necklaces and t-shirts and pictures when they purely represented execution. Paul, later on in the New Testament, would give us these haunting, uncomfortable phrases like, you must die to yourself. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My flesh has been crucified. And obviously, Jesus and Paul are not talking about a literal death, but we see in these, in these phrases, in these commands for followers of Jesus, that there is something like dying that happens when we take the name of Jesus. There is something like rejecting something core, something of what we were. I want to offer to you this morning the flag, the colors of God's kingdom is the cross. And no one can take those colors and live. Now we're talking about the third commandment, which probably brings like flannel graphs and Sunday school and veggie tales to everybody's mind, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the South and in church, which means I have heard this command taught a thousand times. And do you know what it means? It means you better not say, oh my God. You, be, you better not do it. God will be very angry. Don't say, oh, my Lord. I have this very distinct memory of watching a sporting event with one of my aunts, and they were interviewing 
um, they were interviewing one of the athletes, and the athlete kept saying, oh, my God, oh, my Lord. And my aunt was just exasperated, and she said, well, she just really likes to take the name of the Lord in vain, doesn't she? And I was like eight or nine, and I was like, yeah, she's the worst, right? (laughs) Of course, right? You don't say God if you stub your toe. You never say Jesus if you're angry, and you never, ever combine God with a cuss word. That's what this means, right? That don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then when it was explained, because, you know, being an inquisitive kid, you might ask, well, why? Why should we not do that? And then you would hear, well, wouldn't it be annoying if people used your name when they were mad? If people stubbed their toe and they were like, CJ! Like, I mean, yeah, I guess that would be annoying. But it seems to me like kind of petty to make it into the top ten. That God is just like, I do not want to hear my name for no good reason. You know what I mean? It's like, quit calling my phone if you don't have something real to talk about. It's like that, that doesn't seem like what would make it into the vows of the covenant. And, and I'm not necessarily here to, to, to say that it's fine to use God's name flippantly because respect is important. And people that we love, we talk about with respect. But there's something more going on here. And, and it's not necessarily a, a translation issue. The NIV combines in, in this, the, the translation we just read, the NIV makes one word, what other translations make two words, and what, what in the Hebrew, to the best of my understanding, is two words. Um, take and vain, the NIV combines those into misuse. And take is not really an incorrect translation here, it's just in the way that we speak about things, we tend to assume that things are metaphors. You don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, names are things that you say, right? So obviously this means don't say the name of the Lord your God in vain. God is telling us how to be careful with our speech around the name of the Lord. We think of it as language. We think of it as what we say rather than maybe taking the name of your spouse in marriage. The the word that's translated take here It can be translated take. It can also be translated pick up. It can be translated carry. Do not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't hold the name of the Lord your God in vain. It can be translated bear. Do not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. In fact, just a couple of times in the Old Testament, this word is translated armor bearer. Do not carry with you into battle the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord your God upon yourself as your definer, as your relational signification in vain. Don't wear it. And there's another word, vain. This word seems to be translated pretty well. Vain is a pretty good translation of what this means. And and we know what vain means in English, right? Like I might say that my attempts to become a touring metal musician were in vain, right? (laughs) Didn't work out. Um, It it didn't come to anything. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, depending on your translation, you will read these two words used interchangeably. You'll, You'll read, everything is vanity, all is vanity, or everything is meaningless. 
So vain can mean to do something with no effect, for it not to really matter, for it not to really mean anything. Do not carry the name of the Lord your God with no effect. Do not carry the name of the Lord your God if it's not going to mean anything in the way you live. Don't take upon yourself this name if it's not going to change anything. But there's another way that we can use vanity that we're familiar with. You might see someone who is very self-absorbed, and you might say he is always looking in the mirror. He cares so much about what he looks like. All he cares about is his reputation. He's vain. It's a similar but different meaning that means self-absorbed. It means that the only thing you really care about is, is your own perception or your own reputation. Do not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't carry the name of the Lord your God to build up your reputation. Don't carry the name of the Lord your God if all it's going to do is cause you to look in the mirror and feel better about yourself. Feel like you're better than someone else. Don't carry the name of the Lord your God if it's going to build you up and tear someone else down. Don't take upon yourself the name of the Lord, the signification of the covenant. You remember the Ten Commandments are a bit like wedding vows. And and the Ten Commandments scene is a bit like a ceremony in Scripture. So we're seeing this in almost marital language. So it's reasonable to assume that God is saying, I'm giving you my name. We are sharing this name now. In fact, the words used here, do not take the name of the Lord your God. Do not take the name of Yahweh your Elohim. Covenant name, relational name, and title. God is saying, I am yours. I am your God. I am committed to you. If you remember two weeks ago, we said that God's, that the covenant is built on God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is what carries, what builds, what sustains the covenant, not ours. Then last week we said that mercy is the clear definition of God's character, that his mercy eclipses his, ju- his judgment, eclipses his wrath. That if we want to know what God is like, we define him by mercy and kindness and love and gentleness. And out of those things, everything else comes. He is defining himself in this way, and he's saying, do not take my name who I, as I have revealed myself to you, in vain. Do not wear my name to no effect. It's not hard to imagine, and we could spend the next 20 minutes or so talking about various ways that we carry the name of the Lord in vain, and we could really nail down how we can apply this to our lives. But, I mean, it's pretty obvious. When we think of vanity as selfishness, it's not hard to see vanity in the name of Jesus in our world right now. As people use the name of Jesus to gain reputation, to gain followers on social media, to gain influence over one another, to sell books and build brands, I think it would be safe to say, at least in my mind, that American Christian culture is often just a name in vain. But it's easy to look at the people around us. It's easy to look at the culture around us and call vanity. It's much harder to look at our own lives and say, what, what is the unsurrendered sin in my life that I have justified with God's mercy? 
that means I am carrying his name in vain. What is the bitterness and unforgiveness that I'm holding on to? Who is that person that I just can't forgive? Which means I have received forgiveness that I am not allowing to affect the way I forgive anyone else. In what way am I carrying the name in vain? What bitterness am I clinging to? In, in, in what place am I loving and receiving God's mercy, but, but refusing to allow it to penetrate deeply into my life and, and, and reveal my own heart? You know, one of the, I think, the most common vanities, if you will, in, in kind of millennial Christian culture is we love, and I love the Enneagram, we use the Enneagram at the fold a lot, we love self-awareness and, and internal development, which is a wonderful thing, but so often it becomes, I'm a three, that's just how I am. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm arrogant and conceited, what are you going to do? And we allow self-awareness... We allow God revealing our heart to us to be a grace that we receive, but we don't allow it to change anything. We rather use that grace to justify the continuation in our sin and selfishness, which is a carrying of the name in vain. Because if I learn about my conceit and self-absorption, but never lay it down at the cross of Jesus, knowing that he who had power and was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for himself, then I have received what I refuse to give. I am carrying a name for self-gain and self-affirmation. And it is vanity. When I live in known addiction, substance, images... And do nothing, put, put in no effort towards transformation. I carry the name in vain. When I, as Paul would say, know what is right to do but refuse to do it. When I will allow the Holy Spirit, when I will allow the truth of God's kingdom to change what I believe about the afterlife, but not change the way I spend my money. I carry the name in vain. When I will allow when I will allow ideas of faith to change my political views, but I will cling to those views more tightly than I will listen to the testimony and story of my neighbors and friends who hold a different perspective. I carry the name in vain. So what I want us to do, what I want to invite us to do, I I can't make us do anything this morning, but what I believe is the only right way to respond is in confession and repentance. Confession is simply telling the truth. Confession and repentance in in our world and our kind of religious stereotypes has this very negative connotation as if it's a shameful thing, but confession is telling the truth, which means when I tell the truth about myself, I say, I have carried this in vain, and this is the truth of God's love for me. I tell both truths equally, so I say, I have fallen short here. God has given me mercy for this place that I have fallen short. I tell the full truth about myself. That's confession. 
Confession is telling the truth, which is why it's so important to know that this command is couched in the Ten Commandments, where one verse before God said, I might punish for a few generations, but I show mercy for a thousand because I tell the whole truth about myself. I, I, can, I can embrace the uncomfortable reality of what it means to carry the name in vain because I know it's God's faithfulness that sustains the covenant, not mine. So when I acknowledge my own lack of faithfulness, I am also acknowledging his faithfulness that overshadows and supersedes my failure. I tell the full truth about myself. And repentance means to change your mind, to turn away. It's a 180-degree turn. It means to, when you fully realize the truth, to embrace what is better. When we talk about confession and repentance, we talk about telling the truth of our situation, the truth of what God is calling us to, and then turning towards, not in perfection, but in a move away from what we have confessed as wrong and a move towards what we have confessed as right. I've got a friend who describes repentance like this. Imagine that Jesus set a banquet in front of you and you are in the bathroom drinking out of the toilet. Confession is realizing it's a toilet and repentance is coming to the table. It's not shame and guilt. It's there's a banquet here that I wasn't eating at. There's something so much better for me. Yes, what I was doing was gross, but I was in the toilet and Jesus still wants me at the table. It's confessing the beautiful truth of who God is and turning into the feast that he has for us. That's confession and repentance. So today, if you have found the Holy Spirit moving in your heart saying, you're carrying my name in vain, then allow the Holy Spirit to show you the feast, the beautiful love of God that he's inviting you into. So this is what we're going to do. Our worship leaders are going to come and they're going to they're play And we're going to engage in a time of confession and repentance. And I just want to encourage you. If you need to confess out loud to someone, confess to your spouse. Tell them that thing that is in your heart. Something beautiful happens when we say out loud what we have been afraid to admit because it loses loses its strength. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come to me and say, I want to confess this thing. And I can see the fear and shame in their mind and in their heart because they're afraid that if they say it out loud, it's going to ruin their lives. And then when they say it out loud, they realize that it actually wasn't nearly as heavy as they thought it was. It's just been in their mind so much that it's been blown out, that it's been, it's been inflated. When you say it out loud, it breaks the chain of that thing over your, over your life because someone else is able to say, I hear you and I love you. I struggle with that too. And you're able to find freedom. Maybe you need to confess to someone. Maybe you would like to talk to, maybe you don't have a spouse or a fold group leader to confess to. Myself, Chelsea, we're going to be up here on the front row. We'd love to pray with you. If you need to just kneel down up here at the front or at your seats and confess to the Lord, then do that. I want us to engage in a time of confession and repentance. If you would like someone to pray for you, please come talk to myself. Come talk to Chelsea. Come up to the front and we'll lay hands on you. You don't have to tell us what you're praying for. We just want to pray for one another in community. The Holy Spirit moves in response to the repentance of the people of God. The Holy Spirit moves in response to the prayer and repentance and confession of God's people. You know, we talked last week very briefly about the revival or outpouring or whatever thing that's going on in Asbury. And I know there are a lot of of controversy and a lot of haters around that stuff. But what I do know for sure is that it started with a bunch of college students confessing and repenting. 
And then the Holy Spirit moved in response to their confession and repentance. Whatever's happened since then, the Holy Spirit moved in response to confession and repentance. So let's be people who do as followers of Jesus have been instructed for centuries. Who do not hold our vanities tightly, but lay them down at the feet of Jesus. Tell the full truth about ourselves and turn away from the things that would bring us harm. If you need to come forward, come forward. If you need to kneel down at your seat, kneel down at your seat. If you'd like to stand however you would like to pray as we respond in worship, do that now. But let's not miss an opportunity. God will be just as merciful when we leave. God will be just as merciful on your couch later tonight. But it is so much harder to say yes in that moment than it is in this one. It's just the reality. When we put it off, when we remove ourselves from the moment, it's that much harder to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And just so you know, I'm not trying to manipulate anyone. You might pray, and you might hear the Holy Spirit say, you're not carrying my name in vain. You're not. You're not perfect. You don't have everything right, but you don't have any tightly held sins or, or vanities in your life right now. And you might choose to then pray for other people or to worship in response to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry to our hearts is not always conviction. (laughs) Sometimes it's affirmation. Oftentimes it's affirmation. In fact, even when it's conviction, it's affirmation. (laughs) Because it's affirming who we're called to be. It's affirming the full truth. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. God, right now, Move in our hearts. God, if there are vanities that we're clinging to, make them clear to us. Remove our ability to hide them away in our hearts. Bring your conviction. God, for those of us that deeply struggle with guilt and shame all of the time, and what we need to hear from you is the affirming word of your spirit saying, you are surrendered. Well done. Minister that to our hearts. Break the lies of our guilt and shame. For those of us that are clinging to vanities, for those of us that are clinging to sins, for those of us that are clinging to unforgiveness or lust or addiction or pride, reveal that to us. Put your finger on that in our hearts, God, that we would confess it and repent it today. That we would be people who carry your name, not in perfection, but to the best of our ability in accordance with your ways. We would be people of surrender who see the joy and beauty of confession and repentance. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Respond however you feel that.